Now, for those of you that were here a year and a half ago when uh, we started all the way back in uh, Genesis, um, I asked the question, you know, why does the Bible have to be so long? 66 books, and, uh, you know, you're reading the lists of genealogies and battles and all kinds of things, and you just wonder, um, why does it have to be so uh, extensive? Why can't we get to the point? You know, we want... uh, yeah, you're studying for a test, so you want the bottom line, right? The objectives. Let's just have an outline form here. And uh, why don't we have a Bible that's written like this? I mean, you could probably put it on one page. This is what I require. And believe this. I mean, authoritatively, from God. These are the things. Believe these things. Do this. And we have a list here. And then we have a signature at the bottom. Oops, signed God. Here. Why, do, why do we have a story? You know, 80% of the Bible or so is just a long story. Um, why, and, you know, look at all the different denominations that, uh, that argue about uh, different doctrines that, that come out of the Bible. Uh, why can't it be more uh, straightforward? Well, I think the book of uh, Hosea is a good time maybe to at least partially answer that question. Why the Bible is a story and not primarily a list of doctrines. So again, we're in this time leading up to the um, Assyrian captivity, and we've talked about Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, last time Amos, and today we're in the book of um, Hosea, which is very much uh, here building in momentum the last few years uh, before the Assyrian captivity. And God is really kind of desperately making his case here, trying to uh, uh, prevent uh, great devastation. Okay, so who knows what the Asherah poles looked like, but certainly idolatry was a major problem in this time, and all these commands cut down the Asherah poles, okay, worship of Baal, and so on. So idolatry was uh, what God was uh, dealing with here in this time. Uh, But this is the setting, okay, for understanding why God gave Hosea the message um, that he did, just a little bit of what was going on. And uh, this is a few chapters into Hosea. The Lord says, Wine, both old and new, is robbing my people of their senses. They ask for revelations from a piece of wood, perhaps referring to an Asherah pole. A stick tells them what they want to know. They have left me like a woman who becomes a prostitute. They have given themselves to other gods. At sacred places, on the mountaintops, they offer sacrifices. And on the hills, they burn incense under tall, spreading trees because the shade is so pleasant. As a result, your daughters serve as prostitutes, and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. And uh, the, the dominant theme or metaphor for prostitution in the old, or I'm sorry, for idolatry in the Old Testament is uh, prostitution. Okay, so perhaps the reason that God asked Hosea, as we'll say, to marry a prostitute is we're working in this model of understanding um, idolatry. So God would continue, yet I will not punish them for this because you yourselves go off with temple prostitutes and together with them you offer pagan sacrifices. Remember that was what was involved in idolatrous worship. You would go and part of the worship service was to meet uh, with a temple prostitute. And as the proverb says, a people without sense will be ruined. The people of Israel are under the spell of idols. Let them go their own way. After drinking much wine, they delight in their prostitution preferring disgrace to honor. They will be carried away as by the wind, and they will be ashamed of their pagan sacrifices. Okay, so jumping ahead to Isaiah 4, or Hosea 4, we see that uh, idolatry um, here is the issue. 
Okay, and so it's just amazing. We, we, you know the story quite well, I'm sure. But just to imagine yourself as Hosea, and here's the message that you get from God. So when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go marry a prostitute. And it would appear from the wording that uh, this was to marry someone uh, who was already a prostitute. Go marry a prostitute who will bear illegitimate children conceived through prostitution. Might you question the message just a little bit if uh, you receive this uh, command from God? Um, as we go through the, the minor prophets and major prophets, it, it's amazing here some of the things that God had them do. When we get to Ezekiel, he had to lie on one side for over a year, and he had to lie on the other side for 40 days. Um, he even asked Ezekiel to eat um, human uh, excrement, okay, and... It's unbelievable. To make a point, to make a very vivid, compelling point. Remember he asked Abraham, go sacrifice your son. And there was a point, there was a revelation from that. And notice, what's the point? This will illustrate, this will reveal something. How Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. And uh, as we read on here in Hosea, there's this kind of this contrast. And sometimes it's hard to tell. Is this Hosea talking? Is this God talking? But this uh, contrast between Hosea's wife, Gomer, who is unfaithful, and unfaithful Israel. Hey, but the, the point for the people in that time, um, very dramatic point is, wow, look at Hosea. He's off marrying a prostitute, and this is to reveal something um, to us. So reading on here, my children, plead with your mother. Now, this, is this uh, Hosea talking or God talking? Plead with your mother. Though she is no longer a wife to me, and I am no longer her husband, plead with her to stop her adultery and prostitution. And she said, I will go to my lovers. They give me food and water, wool and linen, olive oil and wine. So I'm going to uh, fence her in with thorn bushes and build a wall to block her way. Okay, again, is this uh, Hosea? Uh, is this God talking? At times it's very clear uh, that this is uh, God talking to his people. She would never acknowledge that I am the one who gave her the grain, the wine, the olive oil, and all the silver and gold that she used in the worship of Baal. So I am going to take her into the desert again. Okay, like back through the, the 40 years in the desert. There I will win her back. Now this is looking into the future, it would seem. With words of love, I will give back to her the vineyards she had and make Trouble Valley a door of hope. Trouble Valley refers to the whole story with um, Achan, you remember, when they just went into the promised land. She will respond to me there as she did when she was young, when she came from Egypt. And uh, this seems rather gracious of God. You know, you remember the 40 years uh, in Egypt and how, how rebellious the people were. But, well, she will respond to me uh, like she did when we came out of Egypt. And the Lord said to me, now, here, this is uh, to Hosea, go again and show your love for a woman who is committing adultery with a lover. You must love her just as I still love the people of Israel. Even though they turn to other gods and like to take offerings of raisins to idols. Okay, so I, Hosea, paid 15 pieces of silver and seven bushels of barley to buy her. Now, just imagine here Hosea. She's out somewhere. Uh, working as a prostitute. And um, how do you think uh, it appeared? Hosea's out there with money. 
you know, have you seen uh, Gomer? And he's, he's looking around for her. Uh, do you think maybe this damaged Hosea's reputation? Hey, I, I saw Hosea down in the, trying to look for a prostitute the other day. Hey, do you think that was harmful for his reputation? Um, has God damaged his reputation by uh, sticking with the people who were so rebellious? Uh, I think it's been very harmful uh, to God's reputation. Now, in the long run, I think if we understand what God is doing, that's uh, very good for God's reputation. But certainly in the short run, um, it was harmful. But the parallel here again is God is saying, I am like Hosea. Hosea had a wife who was a prostitute. Okay, she left him. She had children in prostitution. But what is Hosea doing? He's trying to buy her back, still trying to win her back. And so the parallel for God is, yes, even though you've done all those things, I'm still trying to win you back. Just as you see Hosea going after his prostitute wife, that's me. And I am still seeking after you. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful um, story that uh, here God just let them go. He even goes to the ends uh, with his prostitute people to win them back. So that certainly is one point. We always have to point out, and I think it's very important to see that these people were religious. We imagine them as just being completely a-religious. But uh, we could put, just from Hosea, a lot of evidence of this. They take their sheep and cattle to offer sacrifices to the Lord, but it does them no good. And the Lord says, sound the alarm. Enemies are swooping down on my land like eagles. My people have broken the covenant I made with them and have rebelled against my teaching. Notice, even though they call me their God and claim that they are my people and that they know me, they have rejected what is good. Because of this, their enemies will pursue them. Now, this may seem uh, a little strange. We just read about they're involved in idolatry. How can they at the same time be religious, claiming that God is their God, offering sacrifices? I mean, that would seem uh, inconsistent, um, but it really shouldn't be. Um, you know, is, is this country, by and large, a, quite a religious country? I think you'd have to say it is. Does that mean there's no idolatry? Remember, uh, how do we uh, define idolatry? It is uh, essentially, you know, the, the God is to be the center of our universe. Uh, our love, our thoughts, um, our greatest desires all should revolve around God. If anything replaces that, uh, that is the essence of idolatry. So we could list hundreds of things here. Uh, remember, Paul would say greed is a form of idolatry. And so I think perhaps a message for us uh, would be, yeah, going to church, uh, great. Claiming Jesus to be God and so on, wonderful. But if our 99.9% .9 of our thought world revolves around, uh, let's say, a desire for money or anything else, um, that's idolatry. Okay, so an obsession with whatever it might be, health, even positive things. Okay, but if that becomes our world... Okay, and God really is not a part of it at all. Uh, that's a form of idolatry. Nationalism is certainly a form of idolatry. And for some people, it's just politics and all of that. It's, that's uh, the all-consuming uh, passion. Okay, and it could be something as, as trivial as a sports team or who knows what. But uh, God has to be at the center. Okay, and if he isn't, that's a form of idolatry. So again, we see religious people, but yet... Uh, all wrapped up in, uh, in idolatry. And God says, that's, that's not what I want. Okay, I don't want the big show. I, I want uh, 
I want a relationship. I want a connection with you. <clears throat> so God would say, they are doomed. They have left me and rebelled against me. They will be destroyed. I wanted to save them, but their worship of me was false. Now, we get an idea here about what this false worship was. If we just read on. They've not prayed to me sincerely, but instead they throw themselves down and wail as the heathen do. Hey, why do people throw themselves down and wail in worship of God? When they pray for grain and wine, they gash themselves like pagans. Remember the people running around the altar uh, of Baal? When uh, Elijah called fire down, they gashed themselves, uh, said as there was their tradition. Okay, why do people cut themselves and uh, throw themselves down in worship of God? Remember we've said the hallmark of paganism all the way through the Old Testament is appeasement. The gods are angry. They need lots of blood. Uh, best is the, the death of your firstborn. Okay, that will appease God. <clears throat> and so the false worship, and anytime people turn away from God to um, idolatry and paganism, it's worship of angry gods that, that, that need to be appeased. So if we could say what the fundamental problem is, um, I think... Um, I think Hosea comes right down to it in Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. That's interesting. Lack of knowledge. What? Neurology, math, knowing facts and details. Okay, what lack of knowledge? Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Okay, now what knowledge is this? Let's, let's start with uh, verse 1. And let's read this in another translation. There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. That's really what this means. It is a knowledge of a person, okay? not a knowledge of uh, facts and so on. And uh, these words, we've talked about so many times, to know God, how significant that is in the Bible. It is a, it's a personal, relational uh, intimate knowledge, it's a trusting relationship, it's, a, it's a, something that's based on a knowledge of God's character. Okay, this is the essence of the problem. My people don't know me. Adam, remember, knew Eve. And when he knew Eve, they had a son. It's, it's intimacy. They don't know me. It is all your fault, you priests, for you yourselves refuse to know me. The more priests there are, the more they sin against me. They have exchanged the glory of God for the disgrace of idols. And I mentioned so many times, eternal life is to know God. Okay, Jesus didn't just you know, come up with that as something entirely new in the uh, New Testament. This runs all the way through the Old Testament. And um, hmm. Well, let me read the first line here. Um, this is again from Hosea. The people say, let's return to the Lord. He has hurt us, but he will be sure to heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage our wounds, won't he? In two or three days, he will revive us and we will live in his presence. Let us try to know the Lord. He will come to us as surely as the day dawns, as surely as the spring rains fall upon the earth. But the Lord says, Israel and Judah, what am I going to do with you? Your love for me disappears as quickly as morning mist. It is like dew that vanishes early in the day. That is why I've sent my prophets to you with my message of judgment and destruction, which uh, we spent a long time on in Amos. What I want from you is plain and clear. And I love these verses where it's just um, like in John. This is how the judgment works. And then we get a description. 
Okay, what I want from you is plain and clear. Okay, how would you fill in the blank here? What does God want from us that is plain and clear? Okay, here it is. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. This is one of these just great uh, texts here. Remember we've said that Hebrew poetry is not based on rhyme but on repetition. Okay, where the second line reinforces, adds a, a depth of meaning to the first line. So the first line here, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. This goes with the second line, I'd rather have my people know me than to burn offerings to me. So animal sacrifices goes with burning offerings. And so the contrast here is made between knowing God, a knowledge of God, an intimate knowledge of God with constant love, which is, I think, a good... Boy, we want to understand what does it mean to know God, to experience his constant love. That's it. So these two uh, go together. That's what God wants. That's what he's looking for. Okay, so this theme um, here about to know God, and I'll just bring a, a few verses up just to try to make a point. It's a, it's a redundant theme in the Old Testament. The description of the new earth in Isaiah on Zion, God's sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. The land will be as full of knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. Um, again, not knowledge of lists and so on. But in the new earth, the knowledge of God is, is full of the seas are of water. That is uh, a true knowledge of God's character. That is complete trust, uh, experience of this constant love with God. I think that's what it's describing. In Psalm 36, how precious, O God, is your constant love. We find protection under the shadow of your wings. We feast on the abundant food you provide. You let us drink from the river of your goodness. You are the source of all life, and because of your light, we see the light. Continue to love those who know you and to do good to those who are uh, righteous. So again, this description of God's constant love in here and then uh, to know God. And we've read so many times here, which is, uh, for me, such an essential core message of the Bible, where Jesus, the night before he would die, would tell his disciples, uh, this is eternal life. Okay? And it had nothing to do with how long it lasts. But eternal life means to know you. Okay? Same thing. The only true God. And to know Jesus Christ. For how could we know the only true God without Jesus Christ? And Jesus would describe his mission. I have shown your glory on earth, okay, which again was not a physical brightness. Okay, this was a glory, a revelation of God's character. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Okay, and then he very clearly said what his work was. I have made you known. Eternal life is to know God. Jesus came to reveal God's character, that we might know him. Okay, and... Um, so the same writer here, John, in, in 1 John, would say another one of these just bottom line sentences. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And again, helpful just to imagine. How would we complete the sentence here? Why did Jesus come? What understanding did Jesus come to bring us? So that we know the true God. Okay, same message in John 17. We live in union with the true God. Okay, that is an intimate knowledge of God. In union with his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God, and this is eternal life. 1 John 5.20 goes with John uh, 17, 3 to 6. Eternal life is to know God. 
Okay, and so, um, again, as we've said, the, the mission of Jesus here in coming as a baby and dying, that at, at the core of that mission uh, was to reveal a knowledge of God's character, to restore our trust in God, and to bring us back into this intimate uh, union with God once again. And so we have uh, Paul, who's, uh, again, often thought to primarily describe a, a legal uh, metaphor for understanding things. But, um, you know, uh, some of Paul's statements, like this here in Philippians 3, where he would say, I reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable than knowledge of Christ Jesus. It's the same thing. This is what was most important to Paul, the knowledge of Christ Jesus. For his sake, I've thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage. I mean, is he now making a, a relative here comparison? So that I may gain Christ and be completely united with him. Again, to know God, it is to be united uh, with him. And in Ephesians, Paul would say, I've not stopped giving thanks to God for you. I remember you in my prayers. And ask the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, to give you the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Who will make you wise and reveal God to you so that you will know him. Okay, this knowing God, uh, again, uh, it's so important. So Jesus told this parable three different times, and it always ended with the same uh, punchline here. This is from Matthew 7. And he would say, when the judgment day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name we drove out many demons and performed many miracles. And then I will say to them, okay, well, what will he say to them? What, what did they do that was uh, wrong here? Okay, well, didn't have the right list. Didn't keep the right day. Dress wasn't good enough. Something wrong with diet. Uh, what will he say to them? Go away, I never knew you. Which always bothered me uh, as a child because it seemed so cold. God is going to come back and he's going to say, I never knew you. Doesn't he know the hair on all of our um, heads here? But again, in the biblical sense, when we take in the, the full um, understanding of what it means to know God, is God really going to say this when he comes back? You know, this is a parable. And it's meant to have uh, a meaning for us, okay? That when God comes back, do we know him in the eternal life sense of, of knowing God? Okay, that's what it's all about. All right, so uh, coming back here to Hosea, and um, I just want to suggest that a, a, a dominant metaphor in the Bible for understanding the reality of things is uh, marriage. Okay, when God looks, what can I make a parallel to that will help... Um, help explain the, the reality of our relationship, it's marriage. And so I'm going to um, take a, a verse here from Ezekiel, or a passage, um, which is, um, uh, I think, uh, just, just very touching. We probably won't have a chance to get to Ezekiel here before the end of the year, so we'll um, skip forward to this. So God describes it this way. When you were born, no one cut your umbilical cord, or washed you, or rubbed you with salt, or wrapped you in cloths. No one took enough pity on you to do any of these things. When you were born, no one loved you. You were thrown out in an open field. And then I passed by and saw you squirming in your own blood. You were covered with blood, but I wouldn't let you die. I made you grow like a healthy plant. You grew strong and tall and became a young woman. Your breasts were well formed and your hair had grown, but you were naked. As I passed by again, I saw that the time had come for you to fall in love. I covered your naked body with my coat and promised to love you. Yes, I made a marriage covenant with you, and you became mine. 
Okay, so um, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, we put this together with Hosea. You know, God's attempts here, and Hosea was trying to win a prostitute back. But here it describes God's relationship um, with his people through the Old Testament. Okay, and, and you know the evidence for some of this, but when Paul would talk about the relationship between husbands and wives, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Men ought to love their wives just as they love their own bodies. As the scripture says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one. Okay, and there is a deep secret truth revealed in this scripture, which I understand as applying to Christ and the church. Okay, so again, what Paul is saying here, yeah, all these things about a man and a woman, how they come together in union and in love, and I understand that as applying to Christ and his church. Again, it's, it's a marriage. I think we're still talking about this to know God. It is a, an intimate union. And the, the Bible ends with a, a marriage consummation. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth disappeared. The sea vanished. It, all very significant here. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared and ready like a bride dressed to meet her husband. Okay, now, just uh, notice the description here. I heard a loud voice. Now God's home is with people. Does that sound like an intimate union? He will live with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them. He will be their God. So repetitious. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and they will see his face. A very, um, again, a, a lot of uh, symbolism here, but the, the point is, it's uh, describing something very incredible uh, that will happen. And I think sometimes we lose this, depending on how we, we emphasize different things. Uh, Wayne Northey described kind of the Western description uh, frequently as um, perhaps underemphasizing this. In the history of Western church since the era of Constantine, God as stern, moral sentencing judge eclipsed God as loving storyteller who weaves a transformative tapestry of faith, hope, and love through the ages. Um, we need to put all of the metaphors together, but don't forget the, the marriage relational metaphor. And in my opinion, that's, that's the dominant uh, one that is used in the Bible. And so a, a problem here is if, well, if uh, we mainly see thing as, things as, well, I just, I hope to get to heaven. I hope the price was paid so I can get there. And, you know, our kids talk about things like wanting to fly and do all that stuff in heaven. Um, but, you know, I, I imagine if, uh, if somehow I were separated, you know, from my wife, I'm shipped off to Africa somewhere and undergo great hardship for a period of time. And if I knew I get to go back home and, uh, you know, imagine if uh, my wife thought that most of my joy was just, wow, comforts of America, get to have a nice life again, okay? And really, I'm not having many thoughts about being reunited with her. Okay, that, that would seem rather odd, wouldn't it? I mean, I think the, the point, the, the greatest uh, desire of uh, being with God in heaven, it is this, this union um, with God. Okay, and, and I think that's something that is supposed to happen here in this life. It's not just a future thing, right? Eternal life is to know God. Uh, that's to begin uh, in the here and now. So if you haven't read this book, uh, it's one of my favorite, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's written from the perspective of the devils. And the devils are trying to tempt, and they're having a discussion about the best way to break through and to you know, 
uh, take a particular human away from God. It's very funny and uh, insightful, but I think we have a hard time coming to grips with the fact that, uh, you know what, God really does love us. He really does want us, as we see in, in Hosea. And here, uh, C.S. Lewis kind of comically describes the devils as having just no conception that this is really how it works. And so this is, again, one devil writing to another. The truth is I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy, and that's God, really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to out or to understand that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if we ever came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to, Hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried, and still we can't find out. Yet we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this pursued and accelerated to the very end of time cannot surely fail to succeed. It's all kind of written uh, that way. But uh, again, I think from the perspective of the other side, this, this uh, love that God has, it's, uh, you can't make sense out of it. Now, here's what God doesn't want. Um, here, the, the marriage between uh, Prince Charles and Lady Di, uh, it's what we call a show marriage. Okay, what I understand, at least towards the last few years of, of their marriage, you know, there were public appearances like this, smiles and waves, but there was no relationship. Okay, it is very easy to live life as a Christian and to have a show marriage with God. You know, if you appearances in church and sing a few songs, but really as part of our day-to-day life, there's, there's nothing, there's no connection. Okay, that, that's not, when we, you talk about a marriage uh, analogy, that's, that's not uh, what the Bible is describing. Okay, now, uh, just to conclude here, uh, I'm going to leave out some of the harsh words in Amos, okay, but there are harsh words. God, as we said, is willing to speak a language we can understand. And, and the verse I've quoted so many times here, all the way up to this Bible study, now I get to say it again, because it's in Hosea. The people of Israel are stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? The people of Israel are under the spell of idols. And so what we got, see God doing so often in the Old Testament is speaking a language that a stubborn mule can understand. Okay? If your lamb has become a mule... Okay, you're going to need to use some other methods. So we have God shouting at times. But it's also a good time uh, to consider God's wrath. Hosea is perhaps one of the best times to maybe understand this. So we have words like this in Hosea. God says, I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. And if you're reading a passage like this in the Bible, uh, please keep reading. Okay, now it might get worse, but keep reading. And very often right here in this context, 
uh, we get perhaps a, a way of understanding this. I will attack, and we read on, I will abandon my people until they have suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, suffering they will try to find me. Um, when we get to the Babylonian captivity, I will try to bring together all of the verses that we've accumulated so far in the Old Testament about God's wrath. And uh, what I've said so far is that again and again and again and again, we're talking about God's anger and God's wrath. We associate it over and over with God abandoning, handing over, forsaking. Okay? And, um, and, and I think we see this here in Hosea. And in the most powerful passage, I think one of the, if, if I had to list just three or four passages in the Old Testament that are most compelling about what our God is like, it's Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him as a son, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the more he rebelled, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. It was I who taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped to feed him. But since my people refuse to return to me, they will go back to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates and destroy them trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. And, and here is the key passage here. As God sees his children going off into Assyrian captivity, um, this is what he says. How, oh how, can I give you up, Ephraim? How, oh how, can I hand you over, Israel? How can I turn you into a Sodom? How can I treat you like a Gomorrah? My heart recoils within me. All my compassion is kindled. I will not give vent to my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. So the relationship, once again, between handing over, giving over, and God's wrath, we see very much um, here in, in Hosea. What we want to see is, in actual, real life, what happened when God poured out his wrath. What we see in the Assyrian captivity is the people leaving God's side, being taken off into captivity, and God calling out, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? I think this is a, this is a demonstration. We want to put a picture on what God's wrath looks like. I think it would be the Assyrian captivity. So here's uh, maybe an illustration. Um, we've said in Hosea, God is like uh, here someone who is uh, proposing to his wife. Well, we probably need to change the picture a little bit here because this is a prostitute wife that he's trying to uh, propose to in uh, the book of Hosea. But I, I think we, we really see the two sides of the coin here in Hosea. Wonderful demonstration of God's love. Okay, like Hosea, out trying with money to buy his prostitute back. But we also see what happens here when, in this case, uh, God's uh, bride, the one he was seeking after, said no. Okay, and, and what God cries out as she leaves is, how can I give you up? Okay, now what I'm not saying here in this abandoning handing over is that God's the one who says, okay, said no, and he gets up from the table. Okay, as I understand it, it is uh, us. We are the ones who get up from the table and leave. Okay, and the, that description is, uh, is the essence of God's wrath in the Bible. Now, why isn't God more successful? Why can't he get a yes uh, more often? 
is something I've thought about uh, many times. And I think it has to do with freedom. Again, let's imagine a very real life scenario here. We have a man proposing and uh, the woman hesitates a little bit. She isn't quite sure. And the man here, he really wants to get a, a yes. So he pulls a gun out of his pocket and he just puts it on the table. You know, a little insurance, you know, just want to make sure. And um, there is a relationship, a one-to-one -one relationship, I think, between love and freedom. What happens in her love for this uh, gentleman when he puts the gun on the table? Goes down. In proportion, he's taking away her freedom and her love plummets. And so God, I mean, we've just said what he really wants is this relationship. Um, and can you intimidate people into that? Can you scare them into that? Uh, it has to be freely given on our part. There's no other way. Okay, so um, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist who's written a whole book on this relationship between love and freedom. It's, it's really good. But he gave several examples. I mean, just imagine you're going out on a date. And um, you're at a restaurant, and uh, you order your food, and you say, I'll have a Coke. And the person you're out with says uh, to the waiter, no, he'll have a water. Coke is not good for him. Now, you just lost a little bit of your freedom there. How do you feel about that person? Okay, when your freedom is taken away, your, your love, if it were there in the first place, is going to go down uh, proportionally. Okay, if you're seeing a doctor and your doctor says, hey, you've got to take this medication, and uh, your patient says, I don't think I want to. I'm, I'm going to think about it. And if, it, if you as a doctor say, you're not allowed to leave this office until you promise to take this medication. You take someone's freedom away, what happens to their trust in you? Okay, so uh, the problem here, I think, is what God really wants, it has to be freely given. Okay, and so when we, uh, we break that off, when we walk away from the table, so to speak, we're exercising our freedom, and God really has no choice at that point. What he could do is to rewire our brains. He could do that, okay? But he also could have just made robots, and he doesn't override our free will, okay? So maybe the last point here in this analogy, how do we typically understand what happens if God doesn't get a yes? What does God do to us if he doesn't get a yes? Um, how do we understand the final end of, you know, the death of sin and sinners? God doesn't get a yes. What does he do? Um, well, how would you feel about this man if he doesn't get a yes? And what does he do to the woman? Does he kill her? Um, you know, what is the book of Revelation describing? The final outpouring of God's wrath. Can we use stories like Hosea? How can I give you up? How can I let you go? Um, to understand uh, maybe what is being described in, in God's wrath uh, in the book of Revelation. Well, in a real story here in Hosea, we see what happened. Okay, maybe not a good time here to read Jonathan Edwards, but this is, um, you know, one understanding here of, of how it works, that God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is our purer eyes than to bear than you have in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. And as the description goes on, it is God's pleasure uh, to consume those that he does not get a yes from. Now, we could, we could, uh, what we often do is, well, let's find some key texts to uh, refute that. And so we could use words like in Ezekiel, 
where God would say, I do not enjoy seeing sinners die. I would rather see them stop sinning and live. Okay, but I think the reason the Bible is written the way it is as a story is what really convinces you? A list, God is love, yet we have the claim, or the story of Hosea? What is more compelling that really settles into your mind? Yes, this is what God is like, a story uh, or a claim? Um, What is more compelling? How could you really make a case? No, I don't think God has pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't think God, um, you know, is maybe as Jonathan Edward described, uh, a claim, a doctrine, or we have an actual story in Hosea of God seeking after this rebel and trying to win her back and then crying as she leaves. That's compelling, I think, more than uh, just a list of statements. So I think that's the way the Bible is written, the way it is. And um, we need to put together more stories like this. But I think Hosea needs to be at the forefront of understanding many of these things. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with each person here. Um, All of us are seeking a greater understanding of truth. None of us have an absolute knowledge of, um, of you, obviously, of your character, of the reality of things. Uh, but we ask that you would enlighten us and uh, give us um, wisdom and insight, clear understanding of you, and may that translate into um, how we treat all of those around us. Amen.